Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak, Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Sandeep Sukhtankar. Sandeep is an associate professor of economics at the University of Virginia. Sandeep, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jen. You already sound really, really professional. (laughs) This is my job. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about your research on women's help desks in police stations in India. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure. Yeah. So, I actually am more generally interested in uh, governance and public service delivery. So I came at this issue through this angle rather than, uh, I guess, uh, the crime angle. And I mean, the police are, of course, one of the largest departments in the government. And uh, in India, they tend to be uh, like really, really under-resourced. I know in the U.S., people talk about things like defunding the police and they have fancy military-grade equipment. In India, the many frontline officers don't even have simple weapons like guns, for example. They have just these lattes, which is basically like a fancy word for sticks. So in this context, I became interested in, in working with the police as a public service agency. And one of the biggest issues that they are facing and they are dealing with is crimes against women. This has obviously gotten a lot of attention in the media, even in the international press. And um, uh, India is, is, of course, one of the places in the world with really high gender inequality. They are, uh, there are really high rates of uh, crimes against women. And it's not like the police are just sort of sitting there twiddling their thumbs. They want to do something about this. So the senior officials uh, desperately wanted to do something. But of course, this is a really complicated problem. There's societal norms. There's sort of deep-rooted patriarchal attitudes. So when I started working with them, my co-authors and I, we, we sort of started to ask them, okay, what is it that you've done before? What do you think might work? And for us, this idea, this academic angle of sort of whether or not representative bureaucracy works was was really interesting, thinking about whether female officers can play a big role in uh, helping to address this issue against of crimes against women. So that's basically how I got into this topic. Your paper is titled Policing and Patriarchy, an Experimental Evaluation of Reforms to Improve Police Responsiveness to Women in India. It's co-authored with Gabrielle Crooks-Wisner and Akshay Mangla, and it was recently published in Science. Congratulations. Thank you. It describes the results of a field experiment you ran in India, putting designated spaces that are mandated to respond to women's cases in police stations. So say a little bit more about the problem that you were hoping this intervention would address. Yeah, so one of the sort of main things that we were hoping that it would address is underreporting. Now, of course, you probably know that this is an issue that exists all around the world, underreporting of of crimes uh, against women. Women don't approach the police, don't want to talk about it, which is fair. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of reasons for that. In India, though, this problem is, is just really, really severe. So there are Obviously, hard to estimate, but but the the best estimates suggest that anywhere between 99 percent of cases of violence against women go unreported, and that's for good reason. So there was a really horrible case recently in the news all over India, where there was a 13-year-old girl who went to the police after she was abducted and gang-raped. And then the head police officer that she went to complain to actually raped her in the police station. Um, I guess maybe we should have some trigger warnings or something for this, because it was obviously absolutely horrifying. Now, clearly, this is an extreme case, but you can imagine the kind of sort of patriarchal attitudes that exist amongst the police. They really need some kind of gender sensitization. A lot of police sort of don't quite know what to do when women come in to ask for help. So, you know, we thought we would start with the simple things. So we worked with the police, uh, a lawyer in the Delhi High Court who has sort of experienced working with the police and civil society organizations to sort of distill a few components that 
could be implemented even with sort of all the under-resourcing and all the constraints that the police face. So the simple idea is to try and make the police more approachable to women. One other thing that's important to note about the context is women make up a really, really, really small proportion of the police force. So 7% of the police are women in, in the state that we're working with. I think that's roughly true of India as well. And that, that was true at least when we started. And so before this experiment and the intervention you all were trying, what other types of interventions had been tried before? And what did we know about whether they worked? Yeah, so I guess one sort of way to to categorize these interventions are whether they're gender segregated or mainstream. So there's a number of type of gender segregated interventions that had been tried. So one famous example is this uh, all women's police stations. So these are police stations that are staffed entirely by women and they're only for women. Now, there's a history of this type of segregated intervention to address issues of gender-based violence. So, for example, one common thing, if you've ever been to India or traveled in some of the big cities, there are women-only train cars in the Delhi metro or the famous Mumbai local trains, for example, have these women-only train cars. So, of course, the issue with these all-women police stations is they're really hard to access. Uh, When we started our experiment, there were only 11 of these serving the entire state, which is uh, 80, 90 million people. Even now, they've expanded some some of them, but even now, at most, there's about one police station per district, which is about 2 million people. So if you, for example, are a woman who doesn't live close to this all-women's police station, it's going to be really, really difficult to get to and really, really difficult to get help. Now, the problem, and this is some research has actually shown this, is that what happens then is that if you as a woman go to your local regular police station, the police there say, hey, hey, wait a minute, this is actually a men's station. You have to go to the women's station to get help. Right, which of course is is really really difficult. It's hard to get to your, you know, it's, it's obviously they're constrained there because they don't have enough staff to to handle everybody that comes. So this was one of the types of interventions that they tried, which you know there's some evidence that that this may have led to more cases being registered. But there's also some evidence that that this displaces a lot of cases and and then it segregates women's policing into this. Okay, you can only access help from these all-women stations. Now, previously, the Madhya Pradesh police that we, who we were working with had tried a women's help desk intervention, but it was just sort of this one-page circular government order, they call it, that says, hey, go establish these desks without any kind of support or explanation. But this time, they were hopeful that look, if we do this in a more systematic way, if we actually explain to people what is to be done, train people, put in some resources, this might be helpful. Now, there's other types of interventions that people have tried as well that include these all-women's police cars, their patrol cars that go around. This is obviously, as you can imagine, it's a little bit hard to study um, because they're, they're mobile uh, you'd have to to figure out how exactly to define your sort of treatment and control areas and treatment and control groups. So establishing any kind of causal impact of something like this is going to be very difficult. So that's sort of the broad state of the world when we started. And so why don't we know more than we do about how to solve this problem? You've already you mentioned to you know part of the issue about figuring out what's a treatment and comparison group in some settings, but walk us through the main challenges that researchers need to overcome in order to figure out how to increase reporting and reduce the incidence of gender-based violence. Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's just so many hurdles. So one, one <laughs> as I just mentioned, is that some of the interventions don't necessarily lend themselves to a clean separation of, of treatment and control. Some of them are implemented somewhat uh, haphazardly, or they may be implemented across the entire state or across the entire country, even at once. So, for example, these a lot of different states uh, have these, uh, and they're called nearby vehicles that are these women, women 
driven cars that sort of go around these kind of hotspots to deter crimes or things like cat calling, that kind of stuff. So that's one issue, one sort of broad set of issues. The second sort of broad set of issues is the police themselves tend to be extremely wary of, of researchers. They don't want to share data or, or access. So we, we were very lucky. We had a very responsive and open counterparts in the police who actually wanted to do this, knowing that there was a possibility that the experiment would show that nothing happened or bad things happened, but they were willing to do that. But in general, police don't tend to be that. They're extremely cautious. They don't want to be made to look bad. They don't want to share data because it might make them look bad. So that's one sort of big issue. And then finally, I think one really particular issue in this area is that you're going to have to collect a lot of your own data, right? So so as I mentioned previously, there's this huge underreporting problem. So you can't, you're not going to be able to rely on administrative data on its own to see what's happening to crime rates, for example. And again, I'm, I'm sure this is an issue in, in other crime research as well. But for us, uh, for me, I guess, it was somewhat new in the, in the sense that the gaps are just so large that there's really not very uh, much meaning in the registration data in terms of what's actually going on with crime. So you're going to have to collect data on at various stages, right? So are people reporting more? Of the cases that are reported, is registration actually going up or not? And then eventually, of course, and all of this chain is is actual crime rates. So collecting all of this in a representative manner is is obviously very difficult. And so that's that's another sort of big, big challenge. Lots of challenges. (laughs) Okay. So in this context, what is the process that police are supposed to follow when a woman reports gender-based violence? And what did you know going in about how often that process was actually followed? So, yes, in this context, um, the police can uh, do a number of things. So they can file two types of cases. So one is sort of the regular bread and butter criminal cases or, or first information reports or FIRs, as we often use the acronym in the paper. Those are based on the Indian Penal Code. And those are sort of classic cases of violence in India, those also include things related to dowries. So pressuring someone to to pay a dowry is a crime. There's a lot of harassment of women related to dowries. And so those can be crimes as well. And then uh, there's all the other types of violence against women that we might see in other places too. So those are criminal cases. Now, you can also file civil cases of domestic violence. This is very interesting because this is somewhat new. In fact, that's one of the things that we're going to see in our data is that before the experiment, basically, there were zero cases of civil cases of domestic violence that were reported. These are called domestic incident reports or DIRs. Now, the police really should be able to know to file them. And the interesting thing about this is that it sparks a bunch of interagency coordination. And it if you're filing this kind of DIR, lets women access a lot of resources. So they get resources from the Women and Child's Department, Women and Children's Department. They can get access to legal help. They can get access to shelter. So it's it's actually really useful, even if the police are not filing FIRs, to file these domestic incident reports, which will then allow women to access a lot uh, of these resources. So for many, many reasons, we knew that these processes and these registrations were were not happening. So with the domestic incident reports, the, the simplest thing was that people just didn't even know that this existed. So even though the law was passed in 2005, not many people are aware of it. Not many people know how to do it. It's slightly complicated in that like, you can't literally file it at the station. You have to bring it in front of a magistrate, but you can do most of the paperwork in advance. So this was just a, a sort of knowledge gap. Then the big issue with the criminal cases, the FIRs, is that even though you really shouldn't be using these to measure crime rates, the reality is that people do. And so... If you register more FIRs, 
you might get a media report that says, oh, hey, crime is going up in this area. Even though crime actually hasn't gone up, it's just that more of it is being registered. So the police are really you know, unwilling to register because it makes them look bad. It makes them look like crime is, go- is going up. It creates extra work for them because there's some legal obligations with once you file an FIR, you have to investigate. Uh, it also allows you to make arrests. So so in a way, it's, it's a gating step. And uh, uh, But it's obviously really, really important because without filing an FIR, uh, you cannot access justice. You cannot have a court case, really, a criminal court case without an FIR. So it's this sort of key step, very, very hard to actually register. And, um, uh, you know, obviously, once it's registered, 98 to 99% of cases then actually go in front of a court. So there's a charge sheet filed uh, and a court case happens. Basically, then it's the court system and whether or not you actually get justice there's lots of other things involved. But without this critical first step, you can't even reach the court, right? So that's sort of where we were. Yeah. I'm curious. So with the FIRs, did you get the sense that that sort of incentive to not file a report on the police side, did that affect reporting for other types of crimes too? Or is there something about the female victims that sort of made them more vulnerable to this. No, it absolutely affects all other kinds of crime as well. And so there's papers written about this. In fact, there's uh, papers not just in India, but in Pakistan as well, written about this, where politicians literally pressure the police not to file these cases so that they don't they don't make themselves look back. Now, it can go the other way too. The politicians can pressure police to file cases against their opponents or, <laughs> or to file cases when they want the cases to be filed. But for mm-hmm. the most part, if you want to look at sort of the overall numbers, yes, there's a lot of pressure to not register an FIR. In fact, some of the, the horrific cases that we've read about recently, uh, one of the things that came out was that even though these were such horribly egregious cases, FIRs were not filed until days later. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about how you're going to solve all these problems. (laughs) So tell us about the specific intervention you implemented. What are women's help desks? Yes. So women's help desks have uh, four simple components. We wanted these to be understandable and implementable even across the the very large expanse that is Madhya Pradesh. So Madhya Pradesh is a huge state, you know, about 85, 90 million people, very large. You should think of this as basically France or Germany. It's sort of that big. And so the the four components were dedicated physical spaces. It could be a room or most likely just a cubicle, sometimes just literally a desk within a police station. So the idea is to just have a place where women can be a little bit more comfortable discussing what could be sensitive details, right? Uh, And so that was very simple, very straightforward. Um, People thought that this was kind of a a simple but no-brainer thing to do. A second sort of simple no-brainer thing was was standard operating procedures to so that people the police know well what is it that you should do when a woman approaches the desk. Uh, so this was in the form of simple checklists. This was in the form of cheat sheets. Um, this was in the form of a, a thick manual for reference. And then part of this component was also training on these standard operating procedures and these guides and manuals. And that was done at, at various different levels for the officers that ran the desk, for the head of the police station, and at the station itself for everyone else, all the the other police officers in the station. So a so number of different trainings on what to do. And so this, for example, would would help with, okay, what is a domestic incident report? How does one file it? So very simple things like that, as well as very complicated things about, well, is it better to file under IPC code 371A versus 371B, et cetera, et cetera. So that's component two. A third component, which was seemed really straightforward as well, was, was just outreach to the community, to local women's networks, just to let them know that, hey, we have this resource, please come to us and we will help you. 
So this is out some outreach events. Um, you know, there's actually a lot of these events held. We have tons and tons of different photos, really, really fun, interesting photos of, of these types of events. Unfortunately, of course, the police stations also serve enormous catchment areas, right? So on, on average, one police station is serving about 130,000 people. And so it's, it's still hard to get the word out. So that's component three. Uh, and then component four, which um, we'll, I'll talk about in, the, in a little bit when we discuss the actual evaluation, this was sort of cross-randomized. So not all police stations that got a women's help desk got this component, which was a female officer assigned to run the help desk. So half, uh, roughly half of the treatment group was basically assigned to have a female officer running the help desk. Now, this is really interesting because even sort of the, the senior most woman officer who supported the intervention and the evaluation throughout herself was not sure about well, whether women police officers are going to be responsive, are going to be sensitive to women victims and, and complainants, you know, given the huge sort of selection effects, right? There's only 7% of officers are women. And so often the female officers face a lot of pressure to sort of behave like one of the guys, act tougher than than the men. Uh, and so uh, it, it's not necessarily true that these officers uh, might be especially more sensitive to to other other women. So those were sort of the the, the main components of the intervention. Say a little bit more about who staffed these desks. How were the officers selected? Yeah, so these were you have to be a specific rank. So this is an additional sub-inspector or above. So mostly it was additional sub-inspector. So there's uh, the lowest rank is a constable, then you can become a head constable, and then you have the ASI, the additional sub-inspector. So you have to be at least an additional sub-inspector. And most uh, for the men who were staffing the desk, these were basically, you would have of the pool of ASIs that were in the, the station, but the head of the station had had a lot of basically discretion on on who they chose to be the the help desk officer. For the help desk that were assigned to have a female officer run the station, not all stations necessarily had a female ASI already assigned to that station, right? So, So they may have to get someone posted there so that the woman could then run the help desk. And again, most of the time, these women uh, would come from what we know from the district headquarters. So maybe you were sort of running more of of a desk job at the headquarters, and now you were assigned to the front lines is sort of the very broad way of, of thinking about this. Of course, there's exceptions. But the one thing that we did not want to do is to have women being reassigned from control police stations to treatment police stations, uh, since, of course, that would violate uh, sattva and all kinds of other good assumptions that we have for for experiments. In that case, the control stations would be treated too, essentially. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so what are the various channels here that we should have in mind uh, through which these help desks might affect officers' behavior or victims' behavior? What are the mechanisms here? Yeah, so I think um, you know we can go component by component. Um, the space was just to sort of increase the comfort for the women in narrating their stories. And once women know that, the hope was that more women would come in uh, to the police station so that, uh, again, they wouldn't have to be sort of narrating intimate details in front of absolutely everybody. So that was uh, very simple in terms of the space. The training, again, was really straightforward. And the hope is just just filling in some of the knowledge gaps. Checklists have been shown to be effective in in various different settings. So at least just going through it when someone comes in, like, okay, ask them about X, Y, Z. 
have this, you know, ABC type of information on hand. Uh, here's the register. Here's the manual. Those kinds of things. We hope that it would uh, it would make the police's job easier instead of sort of adding more paperwork. Just streamline the process. So that was the hope with the with the training and and the and the standard operating procedures. Uh, the outreach again. The idea was to let women know that there is help that's available for you here. There's some specialized services. You can go and and access this desk. Uh, You don't have to go through all the procedures in the main police station. There's some sort of set aside for you to get help. And again, now with the female officers, as I said, it it really wasn't clear, but the hope was that that women victims might feel slightly more comfortable. And it was possible that the women officers might be more responsive. So this is, you know, goes back to broader ideas about about representative bureaucracy that have been discussed in the political economy literature for a long time. So not just in the case of the police, but other bureaucrats as well. Are you going to be more responsive to someone from your own in-group? And so that's sort of the broad question. There's a lot of research, there's some mixed evidence. And so we thought this would be very interesting to try and look at. Okay. So as you mentioned, you ran a huge randomized controlled trial. I guess you didn't mention how big it was, but it was a huge randomized controlled trial in order to measure the effects of these women's help desks. So where and when was this RCT conducted and how many police stations were included? Okay. Yeah. So this was conducted in the state of Madhya Pradesh. Uh, So uh, 12 districts in, in the state sort of, those were not randomly selected. Those were picked by the police to basically the idea was to spread them out. So if you look at a map, they kind of pick them from all around the state. One thing that they did uh, was to pick the four districts with the four largest cities. So this was definitely an urban skewed uh, sample because their idea was that there's more women that come to these stations, more footfall in general, to be able to justify having a sort of dedicated help desk at at a police station. So other than those four, the other districts are roughly representative of the state. And within those districts, basically, we had a sample of 180 police stations. The catchment areas of these are pretty large. So these 180 police stations serve about 23 million people, which is you know, obviously huge. And so one way of thinking about the experiment is, is to at least 23 million people, if you expect that both men and women are, are going to be affected by this intervention, were potentially affected. And then the Timeline is, you know, this was a long sort of, we can talk about the backstory maybe a little later, but we started uh, piloting and looking at this and starting the conversations with the police way back in 2017. We did a dedicated pilot in 2018. The training and all the sort of background resources started in early 2019. And we sort of consider the the actual intervention to have fully started in May 2019. And then we were lucky enough to get in most of our data collection before the pandemic hit and the the lockdown happened in India at the end of March 2020. So we had a a good uh, 10 months where the intervention was sort of fully operational of course, after after the lockdowns, things start getting a little bit uh, messy. Of course, nobody was actually going to the police stations uh, since you were not allowed to to, to do that. That's sort of starting about April 2020. Yeah, that does was very lucky. <laughs> like so many researchers had their RCTs completely thrown off due to the pandemic. So this was well timed. So yeah, tell us a little bit more of the backstory here. You mentioned you 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 were able to find these friendly police practitioners who were interested in these questions and open to research. How did this partnership come about? So the, the, I think it really worked because the police approached us. Um, by us, I mean JPAL, rather than us approaching them. And so there was an officer, Vineet Kapoor, 
in the police uh, who's not al- not only an IPS officer, which is sort of the highest rank in the police, uh, the broad rank, but also has a PhD. And so he was interested in research. He was interested in evidence-based decision-making and trying to introduce at least these ideas into the police in India because he was of the opinion, along with other people, other people that were his counterparts there, that the police, you know, make a lot of policy based on on anecdotes and and experience, and don't really uh, look at the data as much. And uh, so uh, he found a, a very supportive senior, so the director general of police of the state of Madhya Pradesh at this at the time was Rishi Shukla. He uh, actually later went on to become the director of the Central Bureau of Investigation in India, or the CBI, which is basically the equivalent of the FBI. And then we had a very supportive additional director general called Anuradha Shankar, and she was the sort of the director of administration at that point, which is a very powerful post, then became the director of training, which also helped in the intervention, basically being able to run a lot of the trainings, etc. So all of these officers were very supportive. They wanted to work with us. We identified a few areas of overlap. So violence against women was not the only sort of area. We They were interested in, in some community policing type interventions. They were interested in some organizational changes as well. So we tried to work with them, tried to pilot all of these things, trying to come up with something that was of interest to both us and them and something that they thought they wanted to try uh, as well as something that that really ex ante wasn't obvious. And, and none of this was, was clear uh, ex ante in terms of, okay, this is going to work or this is not going to work or the female officers are going to work or the other deaths are going to work or not. So, so that's, I guess it's a good sort of uh, juncture to, to run, run an experiment when you, you're not uh, sure what you're actually going to, to find. Uh, so then we piloted the intervention. It looked like it was going to be worth studying. We agreed on an RCT. We signed an MOU and a memorandum of understanding with the police and and J-PAL. And yeah, and then that's it. All of a sudden, one day they were like, give us the randomized list right now. (laughs) Just (laughs) sit in a coffee shop, (laughs) running state of code, coffee shop in a hotel in Bhopal coming up with this code of course it you know it took a long time to get to that point and then all of a sudden I'm like do it today let's go let's go <laughs> and we suddenly had to come up with this <laughs> hoping that there were no weird imbalances uh, and everything was okay <laughs> and then of course from that point then it took them another six seven months to actually ramp up the intervention but sure sure and then you wait on the research exactly. side <laughs> and then we just wait <laughs> yeah yeah, this seems like a great opportunity to plug JPAL more broadly. So, for those who are not familiar with that organization, there's JPAL that works in countries around the world, and there's JPAL North America that does a lot of stuff, particularly in the U.S. And yeah, I mean, my experiences with them—they up they fund RCTs like this one, but they also have an amazing staff that spends a lot of time talking with practitioners and policymakers that are interested in doing research just basically trying to figure out like, is this feasible? And is everyone on the same page about what this might look like? And then at some point, if everything sounds good, they loop in researchers like you or me to kind of go forward. Am I describing the process the way that it uh, has worked for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, just a little bit more on that backstory. So mm-hmm. Vineet approached uh, Iqbal Dhaliwal, who's one of the directors at JPAL, who used to be an Indian administrative service officer, and he was quite famous in India. And so Vineet knew him because of that and approached him and him and Abhijit Banerjee then sort of convinced me that I should at least go to Madhya Pradesh and, and talk to the police there, given what they had seen in terms mm. of the interest of the police in doing some work with with J-PAL, as well as just the, the fascinating you know, issues related to the police, right? So everybody in India, for example, really blames the police for a lot of things, but they are responsible for so much with so few resources. It's it's absolutely staggering. You know, people come to them for absolutely everything and anything, and they're supposed to to resolve uh 
bizarre lots of it. I, I don't know if you have time for a funny story. Sure. Um, so one funny story I, when I was doing some field work was this man comes in and um, I'd been talking to the head of the police station and, and he finally t- tells me, look, this guy's been waiting for a long time. I really need to see what his issue is. I said, okay, let's find it. I said, do you mind if I stay? And he says, no, that's fine. So the guy comes in and he tells the police officer, sir, my wife ran away. And when the police officer says, okay, starts asking some questions, it turns out that this guy's wife had run away with another man. Now, obviously, it's sad for this person, but the issue is, I mean, what are the police supposed to be doing about this, right? <laughs> I'm just thinking, sitting there thinking, I- I'm really sorry for you, dude. I feel bad for you, but... Yeah. Not a crime. <laughs> Not a crime. There are two <laughs> consenting adults, right? Uh, and and then he, uh, you know, a lot of time listening to all his his history, and then he brings in his mother-in-law, and the mother-in-law comes in and backs up his story and says, "Yes, um, my daughter ran away with another man." And again, I'm thinking, I'm really sorry for all of you, but like, <laughs> how are you taking up the time of these guys right. who have so much work to do? with this case and so this you know this station house officer SHO had to spend a bunch of time sort of mollifying them and saying oh we can see what we can do etc cetera, etc cetera. in reality he knew that there's really not much that can be done but yeah. he has to at least talk to them right so so yeah that's that's uh sorry that was a, the funny side story but the, yeah, yeah, that gives you yeah. a sense of sort of how People both blame the police for everything, but at the same time, they expect them to solve every problem they have. Right. Just sort of like the level of responsibility or perceived responsibility (laughs) that's on their plates. Okay. All right. Well, let's keep moving here. Uh, We want to eventually get to results. I I imagine people want to hear what you found. Uh, But before we, we get there, what data are you able to use for this project? So, yeah. So, we wanted to be sure we collected, uh, everything possible, given, as I mentioned, these issues with underreporting, etc. So obviously, first and foremost, uh, was the administrative data on crimes registered, both the criminal cases or FIRs, and the civil cases or, or DIRs. So luckily, thankfully, since we were working with the police, sometimes this data can be hard to get, but they uh, were able to directly give us these sort of de-identified, of course, uh, cases aggregated at the, at the police station level based, uh, based on the type of crime, et cetera. So we got that data. Then to see whether women were coming to the police uh, station, were visiting the police station, Obviously, you won't. We wouldn't have been able to do that just from the registra- registered cases. So we thought one uh, sort of clever way ended up being slightly less clever than than, than we'd hoped for was <laughs> to just use the every police station in India has a CCTV camera at the front entrance of the police station. So we thought we could just, we captured uh, video feeds for about a, a week of the data. So they, they're already capturing those. So all we did was say, hey, give us your feeds and we are uh, going to just run it through a, a machine learning algorithm where we teach it, hey, this is what a man looks like and this is what a woman looks like. Mm. Thankfully in India, there is, you know, the, the clothes that men and women wear are very different. And so it's it's really fairly easy to identify. And so we use that to just see, hey, are more women coming to the police station? Uh, so that was one said. It turned out to be way more complicated than, than we, <laughs> we'd planned for. So uh, yes. <laughs> In fact, I, I still have, uh, yeah, we still have to deal with some of the storage issues related to like terabytes and terabytes of <laughs> video data that, that you get. So that was one. Then uh, at the end line only, we did just a quick user survey. So think of this as kind of an exit poll. Hey, you went to the police station, you're just coming out. How was your experience? Were you satisfied? Were you comfortable? Just you know, two or three quick minutes where we didn't even collect people's names, just just sort of a, a kind of quick user experience survey. Then we had some two very large surveys: one of police themselves at both control and treatment stations, where we asked them about their attitudes, their experiences, et cetera, et cetera. 
and then a citizen survey, which uh, you know it's interesting because n- none of our our main outcomes that we pre-registered were really from the citizen survey, but we absolutely needed it to be able to be sure that any changes in in registration or reporting were not because of underlying changes in crime rates themselves. So that was sort of the main purpose of the citizen survey is to get a representative data on actual crime rates. Of course, this is easier said than done. It's it's, it's hard to get these sensitive data, but uh, we were hoping that at the very least we have a baseline. At the very least, we know that this is is not going to be any different between treatment and and control. So at least we have a sense of what the underlying crime rates were and how they changed over time. Okay. And so what were the main outcome measures you're most interested in here? So the main outcome measures are sort of registrations of cases, whether more people are coming in to report cases. We had the user satisfaction from the quick user survey we are interested in in some main outcomes on police attitudes to see if those were affected at all and then as a, as a check we want to want to see whether crime rates are changing or not so those are sort of roughly corresponding to the data sources those are the things that we were trying to get at okay the downside of running an RCT is it's a lot of work. The upside is it's easy to analyze the data. So you're just exactly. going to compare the treatment and control groups and look at the outcome measures across the two groups to see and the difference between them to see what the effects are. So what do you find is the effect of women's help desks on the registration of women's cases? Well, so there's a couple of complicated things that we won't get into <laughs> here. But one thing that I should mention is there's there's sort of two ways to cut the data, right? So again, we thankfully with there's sort of standards on how you pre-register everything, so you're not don't have too much discretion exposed to change things around. So so that's what we did. We we've had everything pre-registered, but because there's three groups and there's two treatment groups and a control group, you can look at the treatment groups together or you can look at them separately. So for throughout the paper, we report them both together and separately just to see sort of which of the groups was driving the change, if any. So in terms of registration, what we see, whether we look at the two treatment groups together or separately, we see a sort of dramatic increase in the registration of civil cases of domestic violence, these domestic incident reports or DIRs. So they're basically zero before the intervention and they're basically zero in the control group. And now there's about 1.5 cases per month per police station. Now, the raw number might seem very small, but that's like a 1,500% increase. (laughs) And it reflects about 2,000 additional cases over the sort of 10, 11 months of, of our study, right? So that's a, that's a sort of big, big increase. And again, the rates and the, the coefficients are very similar, uh, whether it's the treatment group with the, the sort of regular women's help desks, or it's the treatment group that had the woman-run uh, women's help desks. So that was the that was sort of the the first dramatic. If you look at uh, some of the graphs in the paper, it's just so nice and clean, and it's just this huge sort of jump that you can easily see. You don't really need to see any sort of tables or regressions once you see those those figures. So now, if you look at the registration of criminal cases, the FIRs, which is sort of the sort of standard bread and butter policing, so those also increased significantly when you look at the treatment groups together. So both considering treatment to be that you had any kind of desk, okay, and so that's an increase of about fourteen percent or three and a half thousand more FIRs filed. But now, if you break down the treatment group, so you look at them separately, this change is almost entirely driven by the treatment arm, which had the female officers assigned to run the help desk. So these women are really the ones who are driving the increased registration of criminal cases, which we thought was just absolutely staggering. And that was sort of the thing that probably uh, surprised us the most in this entire experiment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so 
Was there any effect using that camera footage? Was there any effect on the number of women who came to the police departments to report crimes or using your your survey measure? Was there any effect on the incidence of gender-based violence? Yeah, so absolutely nothing there. Now, some of the CCTV footage, as I mentioned, was a little bit hard. Uh, we also butted up against the the beginning of the lockdown, just when we were about to collect the footage. So, you know, and some of it is missing. Some of the video quality is not great. So although in theory, it sounds fantastic, practically, it it's just an <laughs> enormous pain, enormous pain. Uh, we had to use the supercomputer here at UVA to run the analysis <laughs> because obviously you can't process that much video on a, on a regular laptop. So we had to buy supercomputing space and processing units and all of that. And after all that, luckily, what we well, what was interesting is that there uh, is nothing that we see in terms of more women coming to the police stations. Now you might think, oh, but maybe just the data is crap. But it's actually not. What's really interesting is you know th there's correlation. If you just look at the correlations, the baseline data is correlated with the endline data. And if you just look across police stations, the police stations that have more female officers overall as part of the station, we can actually see that in our CCTV data, right? Because we see more women entering in and out of those police stations, obviously, because there's more female officers, they're going to be coming in and out a lot. And so that is correlated. So our data is informative, but it's telling us that no more women are coming to treatment stations. So that's actually not that surprising, but it, because in our citizen survey, if we ask people, hey, have you heard of this great new intervention in Hindi? It was called the Urja intervention. Urja intervention. Urja is one of the clever acronyms that people in India love to use. It stands for urgent relief and just action as the acronym, but urja, the word urja means energy in Hindi. So, so that uh, they had all these posters everywhere, these really nice sort of large posters and, and banners and all of this, but only 10% of the women in our citizen survey report even having heard of it. And Probably that's even an overestimate because I think they may be sort of possibly confusing it with other initiatives, but still, so there, uh, and there was no difference between treatment and control groups on that measure either. So it's clear that women didn't really know about this as much as we would have expected. And so, of course, more of them are not going to come to the station. And again, if you look at the citizen survey, there was no actual increase in crime that we can detect, which also makes sense. Um, and so more women are not coming to report these cases. All the action is taking place on off the women who, who come to report more of their cases are being registered. And then using the data from your exit interviews, you considered the satisfaction of the women who visited those police stations. What do you find there? Yeah, so we find some, um, you know, everything is in the right direction. The sort of statistical significance levels are are not as high and as clean as one might expect. In general, if you look at it overall, it looks like there are sort of modest increases in reported comfort. The, the women were more comfortable in uh, visiting in, during their visits. What was really most interesting here is the heterogeneity. So we captured and again pre-registered measures of of training and implementation quality and what's really clean and significant is that all the stations the better training and the better implementation quality overall in your police station satisfaction rates are are higher so that's um uh, that's that's really interesting for us and that sort of underlines the importance of the training modules in this intervention yeah and then finally, you consider whether police officers' attitudes changed at all, did they? Simple, big picture answer is no. And <laughs> that's uh, absolutely not surprising to us because, as you can imagine, these are attitudes that are sort of deep-rooted. And so it's, it's, it's going to be hard to think that a sort of 10-month, 11-month uh, intervention 
and maybe a year of training or so, some, some you know, sporadic training camps, et cetera, is really going to change these sort of deep-rooted attitudes. But there is something that's very, very, very interesting. The sort of exception to that rule is super informative. The one place where we do see changes in attitudes have to do with the female officers and in a very particular way, which is that they are now more likely to believe rather than dismiss cases of women. So specifically the question related to this idea that women come in and file false cases. False cases is this terminology. Like people use the English term, even when speaking in Hindi, uh, like, oh, it's false cases, false cases, right? And then they, 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 this is, again, true all over the world. People don't believe women. But again, in India and in the police force, we find like 40% of officers are willing to say that, oh, generally women come in to file false cases. Now, in our baseline, women police officers are even more likely than male police officers to say that the women victims who come in are coming in to file false cases. But that drops after the intervention. So that's the one area where we see this fairly decent-sized change is that women police officers in treatment groups are now much less likely to say that women come in to file false cases than their counterparts in the control group. That is so interesting. Okay, so what are the policy implications of all of this? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from your results? So I guess the most important policy implication, and it's highly relevant because now many states have this rule that 30% of all new recruits into the police force have to be women. And a thing that you could do is, okay, fine, we'll hire all these women, but then we'll basically have them push paper in police headquarters, right? So take on these desk positions, these desk roles, not be at the front lines. And what I think we find and what our our results really strongly suggest is is that should not happen. The the new recruits really should be at the front lines. They make a, a, a pretty big difference in case registration. They make a pretty big difference in, in responsive policing. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, okay, all you do is just put these women in the police stations and and have them fend for themselves. You know, this is a bundled intervention, and it's clear that the training, the support, the standard operating procedures, all of those were very important, as well as this sort of, it's this is something that we're exploring a little bit more with our qualitative data in a, in a separate paper. So I'm not going to be able to say too much more about this, but basically this idea that there's space created for women officers to respond to women citizens, really. And creating that space is, is, is also, you know, really, really, really important. So I think those are the sort of big takeaways. I mean, in the, in the Indian context, I think one other takeaway is, is just to, to really stop equating crime rates with crime registrations because the gap is just so, so large. Uh, you know, maybe there's some correlation over time and you know, generally across space, but you know, just because more crimes are, are registered doesn't necessarily mean that more crimes are actually happening. So one, one sort of spectacular evidence of this is, is what we see not us, other people collected data on these DIRs, these domestic incidents cases registered all across India during the time that our intervention was in place. And the state of Madhya Pradesh is responsible for 41% of all DIRs filed all over India. Uh-huh. And that's it only has about 8% of the population. So clearly, uh-huh. it's not the case that there's a huge surge in domestic right. violence in MP, nor that MP has really, really high rates of domestic violence when compared to other states. It's literally our intervention that you can see in the national data that's going on. And, and, and you know, it's again, it's really important because registering these cases 
can help women, right? They, they, they can then access these resources. And so, you know, it's not that you should make the headline should absolutely not be, oh, look, suddenly domestic violence has increased in, in Madhya Pradesh. The headline should be, oh, look, a lot more women victims are being assisted in Madhya Pradesh. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you all have ambitions of getting, is it possible to get data on kind of what these case outcomes were or, you know, what happened to the women after this intervention? So we, uh, this, it took us a, a while to get the whole thing across IRB, of course, and we were very, very careful to say, and again, even with the police as well, they they really didn't want us to have any sort of details of the cases themselves. So we did not follow up. We do know a couple of things. So we know that there's no sort of big change in arrests. And so that's uh, perhaps not that surprising, given that uh, that there's limited resources. It's basically sort of in line with the number of, if you, if you look at the, the sort of standard errors, it's in line with the number of increases in cases registered. So it's not that there were filing these cases, but arresting a lot fewer people. It's just that uh, we can't really see this big bump in arrests. We thought we would look at whether the cases were reaching the court system and whether there's a difference in that. That was not as helpful because, as, as I mentioned earlier, what we found is that nearly all cases that are registered as a criminal case make it to the court. So there's not going to be a big impact on that per se from the intervention itself, because basically if you file it, you're going to get into court. Uh, so that rate didn't, didn't change because it's already so, so, so high. That's about as far as we you know, can say about post-registration outcomes. Got it. Okay. Are there any other papers related to this topic that have come out since you all first started working on this study? So I think there's a couple of papers, but I think I mentioned them in the sense that there are these papers on the all women's police stations. So there's a paper that suggests that there's a lot of displacement. There's another paper that also finds some displacement, but suggests that maybe there's an increase in registration in as a result of these stations. And so there's been some work because you know, there's this different, there's some variation to exploit in terms of when these police stations are established, et cetera. So it's, they're not RCTs, but they have, I think, reasonable sources of variation. So those, I think, are the main papers that are coming out. There's some interesting uh, new potential work that people are doing that I think uh, could, be, could be really fascinating and, and tell us uh, a lot about you know, what might happen in this, in this area. And what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this space that you and some of these other people you mentioned <laughs> will be thinking about going forward? Yeah. So, so I think one, so that interesting new study is by uh, Nishit Prakash and Maria Mikhaila Sviacci and co-authors. And what they're looking at, I think, is, is super fascinating, uh, which is exactly one of the things that we didn't see in this paper, which was the male officers' attitudes. And they're doing an intervention where they're directly targeting the male officers' attitudes using a variety of different types of interventions, including like uh, sort of skits and sort of play acting and, and this kind of stuff, which I think is fascinating because, you know, obviously the male officers are such a huge part of the police force and without their attitudes changing, it's going to be really difficult to have long-term change. So I think uh, trying to see if those there's any traction there at all, I think is, is really interesting and, and fascinating. And I think that's super interesting. The second thing that I think is interesting in this space, which you know we're we're hoping to to look at, uh, maybe we don't really have a, a great research question quite yet, but it's the broad area of the female officers themselves and their recruitment in the context of India and its falling labor force participation, female labor force participation rates, which is a lot of papers have been written about this and lots of people have been looking at why and why not and whether it's an issue or whether it's not an issue. But it's what's true is it's very clear that female labor force participation rates have been falling across India. And now trying to understand 
how this interacts with women police officers, their recruitment, this extra, you know, 30% of new recruits have to be women type of policies, I think is really fascinating and, and understanding what exactly was going on there, whether there's going to be huge problems in recruiting, what strategies could be used to recruit, could they be successful elsewhere? Um, I think that th- th- that's that's another really fascinating uh, topic. And then I think uh, there's a paper actually in science on community policing in many different contexts around the world and how it really doesn't seem to work I, I, I'm, I'm obviously uh, really, really shortening their their punchline. <laughs> I think that's the punchline. <laughs> yeah, but looking at some of the results more carefully, it, it seemed like often it was kind of like the community outreach in our intervention, right? So they tried, but they just did not have the resources to do it right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sort of wondering whether, look, is it just that you know it doesn't work, or you just cannot get it to work because you don't quite have the money and human resources or not. Mm. So I think that's that would be really interesting to try and get at. Yeah, it's so interesting how how many of these questions, despite in some ways the very different contexts right across India and uh, and other parts of the world in the US, um, so many of the questions that we're all grappling with are the same. Hiring more women officers, how to increase reporting of gender-based violence, all of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. My guest today has been Sandeep Suktankar from the University of Virginia. Sandeep, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Jen. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit, so all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El-Sheikh. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.